Good morning. Scripture reading this morning will be uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we look to what Christ has done for us, I pray that we would be aware of the depth of your love in his sacrifice. I pray that we would be inspired, as Peter has said, to follow his example. And I ask that you would comfort us with the comfort that only you give, knowing that you are our great shepherd. You have offered us rescue, and I pray that you would give us confidence in you, our Savior and our rescuer. I ask that you would do this as we look to your word, and in Jesus' name I ask, amen. Today, we are nearing the end of Luke's gospel. I would encourage you to grab a Bible, perhaps from the seat in front of you, or, or use your phone and to find the text that I'm preaching from. I will be in Luke chapter 23, and today, we will see Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. And as we approach the text, I want to offer you five reasons why this passage of Scripture matters deeply for your life and my life. Five reasons. And the first is, number one, we need to know that the death of Christ is history. We need to know that the death of Christ is is history, even at a basic level. Maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're on the fence, but on a basic level, Luke presents this account as a careful and accurate historical record. You may remember at the beginning of his gospel, he's writing to a young man named Theophilus, and he says that he carefully wrote down things as they happened. He interviewed firsthand witnesses. In fact, next week we're going to see he names the names of the women who were, were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. He wants you to know that you can go talk to these people. And as I was studying this week, uh, one of the guys that I, I sometimes meet with for prayer asked me, are there, are there references outside of the New Testament that talk about the death of Jesus? And I said, well, I know of a couple but I, I've not read them, I don't know them really well. So as I studied, I, I looked up a few and I found a couple places to go. And I just want to make you aware of some other places that also attest to the death of Jesus Christ. Historians like Josephus and Tacitus, uh, one philosopher named Mara, 
Uh, one governor named Pliny, he's actually Pliny the Younger, because believe it or not, there are two people who've suffered with that name in history. All of those are from the first century. They are not historians writing hundreds of years after the event. All of those, and there are a few others that I did not mention, testify that Jesus Christ, some of them call him the king of the Jews, some of them call him the Christ, some of them say that he is just a wise teacher, a miracle worker. Uh, One or two of the later historians accuse him of being a charlatan, but all of them agree that he was a teacher, that he was famous, had a massive following, and that he was killed for what he did. So the secular historians tell you that what Luke is portraying here is accurate. The death of Christ is history. And this history matters. If you remember, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the importance of the resurrection. He says this, If Christ is not raised, we are of all men to be most pitied. Because we've put all of our hope in what Christ has done for us. And we live and act as if all of our reward is in the future. We give generously to the work of the ministry. We may suffer for faithfully following the teachings of Christ. Following Christ is not always easy. And Paul said, if he has not been raised from the dead, we are of all people to be pitied. But I would add to that, if he did not die as a sacrifice for our sins, we don't even need to talk about the resurrection yet. The death of Christ's history matters deeply for your faith. And so as you study history, you can strengthen your faith by being assured that these things are true and accurate. So number one, this passage matters because history matters. You need to know that the death of Christ is history. Number two, I asked Larry to read from, from the book of First Peter because Peter says that we are to follow the example of Christ in suffering. And that passage that he read makes two things very clear. Number one, Jesus died as an offering for our sins. It says that so explicitly. And number two, that if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you ought to follow his example of trusting God as he suffered. Peter says that Jesus did not answer his accusers but he entrusted himself to the God who is a just judge. He did not try to work his own vengeance. He trusted that his father would make it right. Jesus died not only so that you would be forgiven, but also so that through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you would be transformed into the type of person who would suffer like Christ. Not with anger, not with bitterness. That's the most natural reaction when we experience pain, whatever it is. But instead, that we would suffer with patience. That we would suffer with humility. That when people pile insults on and say things that are unfair and untrue, that we could follow the example of Christ by loving the people who are hurting us. So number two, you need to know the death of Christ in all of its detail if you are going to follow his example 
and suffer as Christ does as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And it's probably worth taking just a moment and pausing. There are people who have come here to worship who are in some grief. Some of you are watching loved ones go through terrible diseases. Some of you have received diagnoses that that are frightening. Some of you are currently suffering deep pain. And so this message matters for you because you can see Christ in his most agonizing moment and you can draw on the same source of strength. Your suffering can be a testimony to your faith in Jesus. And and I don't in any way want to beat you up and say, you know, if you're struggling with bitterness, you know, shame on you. That's the last thing I want to do. Instead, I want to encourage you to find strength in the, the love of Christ for you. And find power in the gift of the Holy Spirit who will forgive your sins and give you the strength to follow this example. So number one, the death of Christ matters as history. Number two, the death of Christ matters so you can follow his example in suffering. Number three, the death of Christ matters so that you can know the depth of his love for you. The death of Christ matters so that you can know the depth of his love for you. In fact, I was talking to another church member uh, about 1 John 3.16. Kevin, we were talking about this last Wednesday. And... 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Pause and think about that for just a second. Probably everyone here has experienced love to some extent. Maybe you remember the love that your parents had for you. Maybe you remember a time when your mother was just deeply sacrificial And blessed you by loving you in a way that only a mom can. Maybe you remember if if you've had a happy marriage when you first fell in love. And maybe you've been blessed by a marriage that has continued to just enjoy the blessing of God in that love. John says, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to the love of Christ for you. You don't know love, even if you've had a good life, until you've meditated on the depth of Jesus' love for you. By this we know love, that that he laid down his life for us. So the death of Christ matters in all of its detail, because you and I need to be assured of the love of God for us. And you will not know his love unless you meditate deeply and carefully on the death of Christ. So the death of Christ matters as history. It matters as an example for you in suffering. It matters so that you know the depth of his love for you. And it matters so that you then love others in the same way. Number four, the death of Christ matters so that you find strength and power to love others in the same way. Same exact verse that I just mentioned, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And the second half says this, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our fellow believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have needs, we ought to self-sacrificially give to meet those needs. 
In fact, if you give from your abundance and you have everything you need, you have not done what the scriptures teach. Philippians, a book that we were just looking at in Sunday school, describes how Christ Jesus, although he was rich, he had all of the privilege and joy of living in heaven in the presence of the Father. Although he was worshipped and had all of the, the power and authority that comes with being the Son of God, equal with the Father, for your sake, he became poor and gave it up and was willing to suffer the humiliation of dying the death of a criminal on a cross. That's the radical kind of love Christians are supposed to have for each other. So number four, the death of Christ matters so that you can love others the same way Christ loves you. And number five, the death of Christ matters because of the universal and global purpose of his death. The death of Christ matters because of the universal and global purpose of his death. Now what am I talking about? I'm going to give you a scripture reference. Jot this down. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. In fact, there's a phrase in here that is repeated a few times throughout the book of Revelation. And it's worth paying attention to. But I just want you to listen to this. It's Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. People are praising God, saying, Worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're talking to Jesus here. They say, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now think about what was just said there. That gives you a purpose statement for the death of Christ. The purpose of Jesus' death was in part to redeem people from every tribe and every language and every nation. I've been reading a short little book. It's Christianity Today's top book of 2019. And one of the things the author talks about is is she took a, a trip to India Sometimes people act as if Christianity is a white person's religion that was spread like imperialism all around the world. And so she's meeting with these these Christians in India who are deeply insulted by that. Said, you think that you gave us Christianity? That is nonsense. The reality is Christ died to redeem people from every part of the world. Just in India alone. They had the Apostle Thomas go preach the gospel there just after the death of Christ. There have been Christians in India since the beginning of Christianity. And not only in India, but all around the world. In Africa, and eventually in Europe and America, there are Christians who are worshiping Jesus. And Jesus died to accomplish that. So that he would buy people, that he would purchase people out of slavery to sin and welcome them into the freedom of the kingdom of God. This passage says that that Christ made them a kingdom and priests to our God and those people shall reign on the earth. That is his global purpose. 
And unless you understand the death of Christ and it's all of its detail, you will not know why we as a church exist to do global missions. You will not know why we exist as part of that group of people that he died to redeem. You know, oddly enough, Europeans weren't even really on the map when Christ died. They were that part of the map that says, here be monsters. Right out on the edge of the Roman outposts. And yet today, we celebrate because of the grace and goodness of God, someone brought us the gospel. And now 2,000 years later, we worship Jesus Christ, waiting for his return, because we know that his death died to redeem us. So those are five reasons that I want you to carefully pay attention as we look at the death of Christ. And if you have a bulletin, you have my outline today. And in my outline, I've emphasized Jesus as the king, partly because of that verse in Revelation. It says that his death redeemed us so that we would be a kingdom and priests to our God. His death accomplishes that and inaugurates the kingdom that he reigns over. And so I've emphasized Jesus as our king because you can also see this all over our passage today. If you're paying attention, the thief asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea, the the man that bravely went and took Jesus' body to the tomb, he is described as looking for the kingdom. The sign on the cross where Christ hung says, King of the Jews. And the soldiers cry, if you are the king, save yourself. Jesus is mocked as the Christ who is literally translated the anointed one. The one chosen by God to rule the people. And so all throughout this passage, you see Jesus described as a king, sometimes in faith, sometimes in mockery. But it's my prayer and desire that as we look at this passage today, you would see your king. And even in this horrible hour of his suffering, you would see what kind of king he is. And together, we could worship our king. So beginning with verse 26 of chapter 23, notice that the kingdom brings weeping. Look with me starting at verse 26. It says, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I entitled this this point of my outline, The Kingdom Brings Weeping, for two reasons. Number one, you do see people in grief at the deep suffering of Christ. Already at this point, before he is nailed to the cross, he has been beaten. He has been whipped. 
His body is so frail and fragile that he is physically unable to carry his own cross. And so in order to execute him, the Romans order another man to carry the cross for him. And in this tragic procession, there are mourners following along and weeping. And Jesus says something absolutely stunning. He says, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. And he warns them that there is a time of judgment coming when things that used to be a blessing will now be counted as a curse. What's better than having a beautiful family with children? Well, now instead of the blessings of family, they'll say that people who are childless are blessed because their suffering will be less in this time. Jesus says, if they do these things When the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And what is he talking about there? Well, if you paid attention in Luke's gospel, you know that Jesus has already said that Jerusalem will be destroyed. As they were looking at the temple, he says, there's going to be a time when not two stones of this temple that's so beautiful will be stacked on each other. And the things that they celebrated religiously would come to an end. And there would be terrible suffering specifically because, and Jesus is the one who says this, because they rejected him as their king. The consequence of crucifying the Messiah was the destruction of Jerusalem. And it happened in 70 AD. These things that that God allowed to happen with his son being crucified had an immediate consequence for the generation that crucified him. But notice the heart of Christ here. He is not condemning them. He is pleading with them. He's saying, weep for yourselves. Recognize what is happening and what is going to happen. Learn from this suffering that he's experiencing and be warned. And if you doubt that, In just a moment, you're going to see that his heart is to forgive the very people who are tormenting him. You can see Christ's love so clearly in the warning he gives to the people who are watching. His desire is that they would repent and be forgiving because the heart of the king is to forgive. And so as he warns that the kingdom brings weeping for those who rejected the king... The king prays to forgive. Now look with me at verses 32 through 38. Scripture says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, and one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. You see, Luke is reminding us again and again and again. Jesus is the king. He's a king unlike any other king in the universe. 
Who else would have the patience to put up with this kind of mockery? If you've ever been made fun of, or if you've ever been wrongfully accused of something. I remember one time I worked as a, as a tutor. And in my job, I was tutoring this young man. He was almost ready to graduate. And he could barely read, partly because he was a really funny guy with a lot of friends. And so he enjoyed a lot of popularity without having to work at all in actually studying while he was at school. And so one of my jobs was to try and urgently help him learn how to read as fast as possible. Because he's driving around like a maniac and can't read street signs or anything. And my responsibility was to help him. Now, now as part of that, I was meeting with a guy who was my boss, and we were talking about different strategies. And I had gone to our offices, not for that, but because I needed to observe a large class where people were learning English. And I was there to earn college credit just to observe. And so my boss came in and pulled me out of my observation time, And started having me plan and work on this other case. And so he's talking about different strategies to help this young man. His name was Eric to help him learn how to read. And I'm kind of looking at the clock saying, I've got a grade. I'm supposed to be in this other room. And I'm starting to stress out a little bit. Because if I don't do this observation, I can't pass my class and get my degree. But this guy's my boss. And so for 45 minutes, he talked to me about different things while I was supposed to be in this class. And and I... Got a little bit grumpy, but I, I was patient. And so later, I asked my other boss, who was actually also his boss, I said, hey, I, I didn't come to work on the clock, uh, but our hours were kind of flexible. I said, I spent 45 minutes not doing what I came to do and actually working on a, a case. Is it okay if I charge for that, if I, if I can be paid for that, since I was working on the clock, even though I didn't plan on being there? She absolutely. You, you should be paid for that time. I'm sorry that that happened. We'll go ahead and pay for you. Well, the guy that had pulled me out of that classroom was so angry. And in a room full of people, he accused me of milking the system and taking advantage of him. And he just let me know exactly what he thought. And I was so angry. Because I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't go to his boss and say, hey, you have to pay me for this because John did this. I said, would it be okay if I got paid? And he just spun it. So I was just milking the system for all it was worth. And I was so angry because I was innocent. And he made it seem as if I were guilty. Now that's tiny. That's tiny compared to what Christ is experiencing. I am a man that is never completely innocent, probably in anything. And yet Christ is wholly innocent in everything. As he is mocked and abused, he never deserved any of the things that he said. And the very statements that they were using to mock him were all true. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. If you've paid attention in Luke, you've seen that the Holy Spirit testifies to him being the chosen one of the Father. You know that that Peter and John saw firsthand the glory of Jesus 
and heard a voice from heaven and said, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. The father is well pleased with his son. And yet in this moment, truth doesn't seem to matter to anyone. And Christ is horribly abused. And yet, how does he suffer? He doesn't try to set the record straight. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't immediately punish any of his abusers. He is silent and suffers. And the thing that breaks the silence is his prayer that the Father would forgive the people abusing him. This is the heart of your king. This is the one who loves you so that when you fail and when you abuse Christ because you know better and you sin anyway, this is the heart of Jesus. Still praying for you. Still praying that the Father would forgive you because His blood covers your sin. Rest in the mercy of Christ that's on display on the cross. Know that this is the depth of His love for you. That from agony He would pray that people who were not repentant would be forgiven by the Father. Think for a moment what the Father must have gone through as he watched his beloved son experience this kind of pain. If you are a father or a mother and you have children, you know what it means to see your kids suffer. There's nothing that you hate more. And yet the father listens to the prayer of Christ and allows this abuse to continue. That's the love of God. That's why John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And a little later in the letter, he writes, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the sin sacrifice for the world. The death of Christ is so great, even for those who never repent, his blood is sufficient to cover their sins. That's the love of God that's so extravagant. So as we see the king prays to forgive, and as he endures this this torture and mocking for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., in anguish, he suffers and shows you the love that he has for you. He was dying to accomplish the very thing that they were asking him to do, to save everyone. This is the sort of prayer that Jesus will say no to when you ask for something that's really bad for you. He stayed on the cross as they were calling him to come down because he knew that your sin and my sin needed to be paid for. And out of his love for you, he said no to their pleas. Not only that, the king prays to forgive these people, but the king also promises paradise to a broken sinner. Seen the kingdom bringing weeping, seen the king praying to forgive. Now look at the king promising paradise to a broken sinner. Look at verse 39 with me. It says, One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now notice, notice the gospel here. Notice that this man confesses his sin. He admits his guilt. If there's ever an 11th hour conversion, this is it. He admits that he deserves the punishment that he is experiencing. And out of his brokenness and confession of sin, he believes that Jesus really is the king. And in fact, it's exactly opposite to ask the king to come down, but that the king is giving his life for broken sinners. And you can see his faith when he says this, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's a stunning statement of faith. If ever things look bleak, it's while the king is being executed. You don't think at that point that the kingdom has a great and glorious future. You think the kingdom has just ended. And yet this man, suffering next to Christ, says, when you come into your kingdom, he believes that it's still in the future. He believes that it's still going to happen. Now here's one of the stunning things that happens if you read the other gospel accounts. Elsewhere in the New Testament, so we have four gospels, four, four testaments that describe the life and death of Christ and the resurrection. In the other gospels, it said that initially, both of these criminals mocked Christ. Luke tells us that one of them repented. And do you know why I think that happened? You can't say that they grabbed some random follower of Christ and crucified him. It's not as if this man were living for Christ, knew who he was, and, and believed in him. He may have heard about him. He maybe had heard some of the miracles. He may had, maybe had heard how he had cleansed the temple. But seeing him crucified is not typically the moment when you come to faith in a religious leader. So what is it that moved this man from being a mocker to someone who asked the Lord to remember him when he would come into his kingdom? I believe it's just this. He saw the suffering of Christ. He saw the patience of Jesus. Nobody dies like Jesus dies. Nobody prays for the soldiers who are driving nails into his hands and feet. Nobody prays for the forgiveness of mockers. And so as this thief sees the reaction of Jesus and the prayers of Christ, he comes to believe there is more to this man than just being a religious teacher. There's more to this man than just being a political leader that's gone wrong. And as he witnesses the suffering of Christ and begins to understand the love of Christ, he begins to believe that there is a future in this man's kingdom and he wants to be part of it. This is the gospel hope that we have, that you and I have. If you recognize your sin, we have the advantage of knowing Christ has been raised from the dead. We know that this is not the end of the story. 
In fact, not only has Christ been raised from the dead, Jesus says that the gospel is going to be preached all around the world. We stand in Holly, Michigan today, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, in fulfillment of that prophecy, that the gospel has gone global. And we're not done yet. But the truth of Jesus' claims are more obvious today than they ever have been. And so if you, like this thief, understand your sin and you know that Christ has died and been raised from the dead, you also can trust in Him. And just pray a simple prayer and say, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you forgive me? Would you welcome me into your family? Would you make me part of that group who who are made to be priests and kings in the kingdom of God? And Jesus will give you the same answer that he gave this man. Truly I say to you today, now hopefully it won't be today for you. I'm I'm hoping that we all make it. This man is dying. But Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus knows this man's a sinner. He's admitted as much. But Jesus died to forgive broken sinners and to welcome them into the family of God. So you see the king in his dying Promise someone else the hope of paradise. There is love in that future hope. Not only do we see the love of Jesus Christ in this promise, but we see the king commits his soul to the Father. See, the king commits his soul to the Father. Look at verses 44 to 46 with me. Jesus says, now now, it was about the sixth hour, And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Notice that Jesus, after suffering on the cross still trusts the Father. One of the things that you see throughout this passage, not only Jesus' love for others, but Jesus' continued love for the Father. The passage that Larry read before my message describes how he entrusted himself to God who is the just judge. He knew that God would take care of him even as he died and he maintained his love not only for you and I, but he maintained his love for the Father who was allowing his unjust crucifixion. There are so many things for you and I to learn from that. You will in your life experience things that are unjust. And you will be tempted To be angry at God rather than acknowledging his love for you. The love and the patience of the Father made it possible for sinners to be saved. It made it possible for us to know the depth of his love. And if that's true in the death of Christ, it's also true for you who he died to redeem. You see, if Jesus died to save your soul... He is not going to allow anything into your life that is harmful for you as his follower, as his child. And so as you see Christ trusting the Father on the cross, you also can trust the Father. That if God had a 
a good purpose for the most evil moment in history. God has a good purpose for the unfair and unjust things in your life. And so you see Jesus trusting himself to the Father. You see the love that Jesus has for the Father. You also see around this, these bizarre supernatural events. Earth is being shaken as the Son of God dies. It mentions that the, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. If you remember how the temple is built, that, that there's an altar outside where sacrifices are made that, that shows the cost of our sin. And also a little picture of the celebration that happens when you're in fellowship with God. And then as you would go inside the temple, there would be a place where you would offer bread. And there would be a little lamp that would show the light that symbolizes the joy and presence of God. And there would be a curtain. And behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God and the glory of God was said to dwell. But you couldn't go through that curtain... Unless you were the high priest and one time of year you had been cleansed and you were bringing blood as an offering for sin. Because in the presence of a holy God, your sin would destroy you. And yet now, as Christ has died, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. And you can enter into the presence of God because the blood of Christ is available as a covering for you. You are no longer separated from God you can now become part of his family. And so you see the love of God on display in welcoming us back into his presence, not because we've somehow managed to pull it together and be good people, but because the Son of God has offered his precious blood for us. And Jesus entrusts himself entirely to the Father. And you know that the Father has accepted this sacrifice and this offering Because he completely abolishes the temple with all of its sacrifices and all of its rituals. Because the perfect sacrifice has just been made. Not only do you see the king in his love warning of the weeping that would come for rejecting him. Not only do you see the king praying to forgive and the king promising paradise. And the king entrusting himself to the father. Finally, this morning, you see the king in a cold tomb. Look with me at verses 47 through 56. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, Watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So you see the king placed in a tomb. John's gospel says 
all things were made through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the one, he is the the, the carpenter of creation. And yet, in this moment, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, his body is dead and lifeless. And so he is carried down from a cross, and Joseph, although this is the darkest hour of human history, notice how Luke describes Joseph. It says he's looking for the kingdom. He's longing for that peace. He's longing for the blessing of God finally being in control. He's looking for the kingdom, and so he's loyal to the king. Everyone has watched Jesus die, and Joseph goes and says, I'd like to honor him in burial. And Pilate grants his request, and it's publicly known where this tomb is. Now that's really important because you remember how I began this message. I said the history really matters. It matters that this happened. It matters that the location of the tomb was publicly known. Not only did Joseph know it, the ladies that followed him knew it. Pilate knew who had taken the body because Joseph had to ask permission in order to get the body. So there was a paper trail, if you will. The history of this matters. And I would urge you to recognize you and I are accountable for what we believe about Jesus Christ. Luke writes as a historian, but he's not a dispassionate historian. He's not a dry history teacher. He's someone who wants you to believe in Christ. And this passage of scripture that we've looked at this morning shows you the character of Christ. Shows you the depth of his love for you and the depth of his love for the Father. And I would urge you this morning to trust Him completely. To know that He is able to forgive your sins entirely. And that He is completely in control. Just as the Father was in control even in this time. I mentioned a moment ago, we have the advantage of knowing that Jesus is our risen King. This tomb is not the end of the story. We are waiting for His return. In fact, we're a little bit like the people that Peter was writing to. We know that Jesus died for our sins. Sometimes while we wait for him, we suffer. And so I want to urge you to be faithful to your king while you wait for his return. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven. Lord, there may be some here that don't know Jesus as Savior. I pray that as we've read the words of Scripture, that it would be the power of God to their souls. That they would recognize you are the author of this salvation. You planned it all, and it went perfectly according to plan. We praise you and thank you for your love. Lord, I ask that you would increase our faith Give us hope in Christ that defies all circumstances. And I pray that we would see you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. As I dismiss you this morning, it's my prayer that you would know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've walked with him for a long time. It's my hope that this would be an encouraging message for you. But if you don't know him, I would urge you, talk to me today 
before you leave. I'd love to help you know from the scriptures how you can know Christ. Now as we leave, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace to glorify your Savior.